thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty as we continue the discussion we began last week about the law review article by law professor Arthur Left of Yale University, published in the Duke Law Journal, about the legitimate basis for a legal system and for law. You'll recall that what he was trying to do in his article was determine the basis upon which we can say that any a legal system or any particular law should be authoritative for all of us, whether any of us in particular likes the system or likes the law. It is authoritatively good. It is evaluated as good, objectively so. And I began the look at his article with a quote from Philip Johnson about modernism that I'd like to repeat as the introduction to today's podcast. Modernism, Johnson wrote, is the condition that begins when humans understand that God is really dead and that they therefore have to decide all the big questions for themselves. And obviously, that would have consequences for legal systems and for laws. Now, given that context, Leff said, here's what we need to do. And I'm going to quote here. Once it is accepted that, A, all normative statements are evaluations of actions and other states of the world. I'll come back to that in a moment. B, an evaluation entails an evaluator. And C, in the presumed absence of God, the only available evaluators are people, then only a determinate and reasonably small number of kinds of ethical and legal systems can be generated. So what is he saying there? Normative statements. They are statements that establish a norm. They are objectively true. They are the oughts of our world, the we shoulds of our world. And all normative statements are, by definition, evaluations of something. Okay? So if we're going to have any normative statement in law that you should, for example, um, limit marriage to a man and a woman, or you should allow um, same-sex couples to marry, or more than two people to marry, or you should allow transgender procedures to be formed on minors, those would be normative statements that are evaluations or are based upon evaluations of certain actions. And all evaluations, he's saying, entails an evaluator. And what he's acknowledging here for the purposes of his discussion in our podcast today is that God is not cannot be that evaluator. And he says, essentially, if that's true, then the only evaluators that are out there are people. One of us, as we said last week, some of us or all of us, but that's all we have. And if that's true, then there's only a determinate 
and reasonably small number of ethical and legal systems that we can consider. In other words, there are just so many, right? Then he says this, each such system will be strongly differentiated by the axiomatic answer it chooses to give to one key question. Axiomatic meaning the foundational, the thing that that must be presupposed, that just is. And here's the key question. Who ultimately gets to play the role of ultimately unquestionable evaluator? A role played in supernaturally based systems by God. So again, he's saying there is no supernatural system that's out there. There is no supernatural law. And God, if it were God, he would be the unquestionable evaluator, right? But he says, if there's not that kind of system, who among us, he says, ought to be able to declare law that ought to be obeyed? And then Left writes this, stated that baldly, the question is so intellectually unsettling that one would expect to find a noticeable number of legal and ethical thinkers trying not to come to grips with it if its avoidance were at all possible. In other words, you're going to try to find some way to avoid having to come back to God if at all possible, right? And he says, that's actually what's happened, that people have considered and written considerably on What else can substitute for the God of the Bible? But as I noted earlier, he said, there are only a certain limited number of options that are available to us. So we're going to now look at how Leff begins to uh, eliminate, in some ways even ridicule, the alternatives to God that people have come up with to try to avoid conceding there must be a God and to argue that we really can have real, ought to, should to kind of laws and legal systems. So Left says, the most popular of those moves may be called descriptivism. And that's a nice, simple word, but here's what it is. He says, it goes like this. It is not at all necessary to specify who is generating the legal system, much less to describe how that generation is being affected or carried out. A legal system is a fact, simply a fact. In the words of uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, Rusus Rusduni, a brute fact. It just is. It's not subject to interpretation. We must interpret it. And he says this. It's, it's something, including processes, that exists. You can say, if you wish, that the law is, quote, the command of the sovereign. But that's only to say the law is the result of that which it is a result. The problem with this that he concedes is this. Quote, any sovereign is as good as any other. Meaning, this is what he says it means, it validates the law to the same degree as any other law produced by any other system. 
In other words, the law doesn't describe something that's good or right behavior, but simply behavior that is either allowed or commanded. So, Left puts it this way. It's not that whatever is is right, but that whatever is is as right as anything else that might be. The central difficulty, he says, with the descriptivist position for all the subtlety and intelligence with which various adherents have elaborated it is that it validates every legal system equally. So Nazi Germany's system is just as good as America's system, is as good as Russia's system, is as good as China's system. It, it produces a command. It produces a law. And he writes this, and it's, it's really important. Quote, no particular characteristic of or procedure employed by the sovereign is necessary to validate the system except that its power to generate something is in fact obeyed. In other words, the law is good because it is. And it's obeyed. Even if the means for compelling obedience is tyrannical. I mean, think of the COVID situation and the government's efforts to stop any other view or discussion of the efficacy of the drugs or the origin of the COVID virus, right? The only thing you really have to have for your legal system to be a legal system is that it exists and its commands are obeyed. So that's why he wrote, as I quoted last week, Pot Paul, uh, you know, surely was to be damned, but uh, on what basis, right? So he says this, the basic engine of law is nowhere, or rather, it is anywhere at any moment it happens to be, and that robs descriptivism of any critical capacity. Under descriptivism, it is impossible to say that anything ought or ought not to be. Pure descriptivism is a description of a state of affairs with no normative content at all. Now, I've been talking about this in connection with the Christian brief that was filed, talking about parents have a right to make medical decisions. It's describing something that exists, but there's no content to it. So a parent could just as well consent to emasculating and sterilizing their child as not to. Right. And that's exactly what some of the judges have found in the district courts that have ruled these laws unconstitutional. Now, for those who may have heard that the Sixth Circuit did not prevent the enforcement of Tennessee's transgender law, and for that we should all be grateful, we should note that the court still avoided, ignored, and circumvented the question of what is a person. You see, we don't want to get into a normative description of what persons are and what they're for. How the court turned away the parental rights argument of the transgender parents was simply, well, 
The Supreme Court has extended parental rights, constitutionally recognized parental rights, to matters of education and visitation with the child. And if it's going to be extended to medical care, that needs to be decided by the Supreme Court, not us. And particularly when the medical care being requested is controversial. And so because we don't really know what a person is and we don't know how far parental rights go, the court said we should leave that up to the democratic process. Now, my friends, that's exactly what they did in Dobbs, and we're grateful for Dobbs. But in essence, the court said we still don't know what a person is. We still don't know what it means to be human. So we're just going to punt and let the democratic process um, seriatim vote uh, in particular instances about what persons are. So maybe you can, you know, kill the unborn. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can emasculate the, 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 the male minor. Or maybe you can't. We'll just let people vote on that. See what's going on here? So it was a win in the Sixth Circuit, in a sense. But you can't do justice to persons until you know what persons are, and nobody wants to define what a person is. So uh, any law is as good as any other, as long as you can get five votes on the Supreme Court or a majority of the votes in the legislature. There's no way to have a critical capacity to the law. So, friends, descriptivism cannot produce the rule of law. And based on how I've described accurately, I might add, the decisions of the United States Supreme Court in Dobbs and in the transgender case, well, uh, we still don't have a rule of law. The best that we have in the cultural milieu in which we exist today and in the legal environment is that we have a process that we've apparently all agreed upon that says uh, when when something spit out or churned out, it's uh, it's law. That's not the rule of law. All we can do is say, well, was the process followed or not? That's not a rule of law. That's a rule of process or procedure. But of course, when the Supreme Court or the Sixth Circuit or whoever it is turns out a law we don't like, we think the whole system needs to be changed, right? So who can even create a system that we can't all question? And, and that's the social question we're being faced with today is, does the whole system have to be scrapped because it's not producing the kind of results we want? And if the end result is all we can have and judge, well, find something that gives you a better end result, right? Now, before we move on to the next alternative that Leff offered us, I want to note something that he says in this context about God and finding the equivalent to God, the equivalent who can answer what he called the playground bullies question, says who? And, and it's very, very important. Left writes this, and I'm going to read through it, straight through. It's a paragraph. And then I'm going to come back and talk about particular parts of it. But try to get it in your head here. I find it enormously interesting that this approach to finding a replacement for a transcendent source of values involves, in effect, a redirection of metaphorical energy. To find a human equivalent for God, there is a focus not on God's goodness, but on his power. It makes sense. For this, too, may be predicated of God, namely, 
whether or not it is ever coherent to question if his will ought to be done. One way or another, his will is done. All of his statements, evaluative and other, are performatives. When God says, let there be light, light there is. It may, of course, be his will that your will is free to do or not do one thing or another, but his response is inexorable, not to mention infinite and eternal. Now, let's, let's come back to this for a moment because it's important. Notice that he talks about finding the replacement for God is a redirection of metaphorical energy. Remember the episode a few weeks ago? based on the Chalk Knox Unplugged event we hosted here, in which Jason Farley said, quoting Alistair McLeish's poem, A World Ends When Its Metaphor Dies. In other words, Leff is acknowledging there has to be something that provides an overarching context to our understanding of the cosmos. So if there's not God, what is his metaphorical equivalent? Now notice, too, what he says. That there's not a focus on God's goodness, but on his power. Now one of the things that's so important is that today, too often, Christians think of God in terms of power. Now, that's not to say that we would deny that God is good. But unless God is triune, meaning God himself is personal, then God cannot communicate whatever goodness he might have in any personal way to anybody else. We've talked in past episodes where Herman Bavink has said, if God the Father could not communicate the fullness of the deity to the Son, then how in the world could he communicate it to a creature in a relative sense? So if God can communicate in an absolute sense his nature to the Son, his full deity to the Son, then it is logical and conceivable he could communicate that down to creatures. But if God's not tripersonal, then all we have is power, which is what we tend to find with Islam, right? God is power, who we say he's love, but not really because he's going to crush you, right? And we're here to crush you if you're an infidel. So we can't premise anything on God's goodness. The point is that in Christian theology, we cannot divorce the power of God from the nature of God, the personal nature of God, and the goodness of God that is manifested in the Father sending the Son, the Son submitting to the Father, to purchase the righteousness that we did not have, and the Holy Spirit applying it to us. There is a goodness in the power of God that left can't seem to get to. So, 
when Leff says all of God's statements evaluative and other are performatives, meaning when he says, let there be light, there is light, it is good because it's not arbitrary. One of the problems that we used to have in theology was whether the essence, the nature of things, were rooted in strictly the will of God or in the essence of God. And and the idea that it was rooted in the will of God led to the idea that, well, adultery is bad because God said it's bad, but it could have been good. And the true Christian answer worked out over time was, no, it could not have been, because that would be contrary to the true nature of God. It is as if saying that the relationship within the Trinity that marriage mirrors would allow Jesus to be unfaithful to the Father and the Holy Spirit unfaithful to the Father and the Son. God could not have, for example, said murder is good, stealing is good, unfaithfulness in your marital vows is good because they're rooted in who God is. Now, let, let's move on. So, so Leff, having found that descriptivism doesn't work, starts looking f- for who can actually play God, be the metaphorical equivalent of the God of the Bible. So this is the question that he now asks. Since legal systems themselves can't produce anything that can be truly evaluated or critiqued as producing good or bad laws, he says, is there any person or set of persons whose generation of law is entitled to final respect? Now, in that question, he writes this, quote, the obvious first move is to decide whether one can found a system on the premise that each person is his own ultimate evaluative authority. In this approach, God is not only dead, but he has been ingested seriatim at a universal feast. (laughs) That's kind of funny. We've all ingested God. Everyone, he says, can declare what ought to be for himself. We hear that all the time. This is my truth, right? And no one can legitimately criticize anyone else's values, what they are or how they came to be, because, he writes, everyone has equal ethical dignity. Now, when I read that, I couldn't help but stop and think what a prescient way to describe things in 1979 as equal ethical dignity which is exactly how the United States Supreme Court ended its analysis in its same-sex marriage decision in 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges. Now, let me, let me read the last three sentences of that opinion, and you'll see that the Supreme Court is saying exactly what Left was saying. We all have equal ethical dignity, and to deny you the ability to define and express your identity the first sentence of Obergefell. This is how they ended. Their hope, referring to the same-sex couples that, that had filed the lawsuit, is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. 
the Constitution grants them that right. Now, what's happening here is that dignity is divorced from the identity that we've been given in creation. That's the whole point of the opinion. We each get to define and express our identity. And when our little godlets come together and they want to say they're married, the force of the law must be used to give them that self-created, subjective dignity. Left goes on. In this approach, everything that was true of God's evaluations is true of each person's evaluations. Each individual's normative statements are, for him, performative utterances. When I say I'm, I'm married to Dan, well, that makes me married. It is what marriage is. What is said to be bad or good, wrong or right, is just that for each person, solely by reason of it having been uttered. Left writes, in the absence of a supernatural validator, what could be more natural than that? Alas, he says, there is a problem. Who validates the rules for interactions when there's a multiplicity of gods, all of identical rank? Equal ethical dignity, right? The whole point of God, he writes, after all, is that there's none like unto him, which is what the psalmist says, right? But the whole point of turning people into gods is to make everyone like every other one. It's totally impermissible under such a conception for there to be, so to speak, interpersonal comparisons of normativity. There's literally no one in a position to evaluate them against each other. And hence, it should come as no surprise that a system of each God for himself is not by itself much of a solution to any basic problem of human society. Now, he moves on to a different way to try to resolve this problem that we're all God and how do we judge these interactions with each other. And we're going to begin to look at that next week. So I hope you will join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.